What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to Vanished in the Valley. Today, we are going to talk about some studies that have been performed on the phenomena of reincarnation. I'm going to tell you a few cases of children that have claimed to have memories of different lives. And a couple of them actually have some pretty good evidence to back up what the kids are saying. We are also going to talk about a fucking tranny sexual predator that assaulted a child at a daycare center and got a big old slap on the wrist for it. Shocking, I know. We are also going to talk about the origins of pornography. And it actually may surprise you where a lot of the early funding for porno movies came from. We are also going to talk about a law that was passed in Georgia in 2022 by Governor Brian Kemp, which basically says businesses, if they have, you know, a contract with the state, kind of have to pledge an oath to Israel. It's all fucked up and crazy. So we've got some other little side shit we're going to talk about. Um, so yeah, sit back, get ready for this. We are going to start with one of the most credible and one of the most research cases involving a child that recalls a previous life. Shanti Devi was an Indian girl who said she remembered her previous life in such details that even her elders and family members, who were, of course, Hindu, were astonished. She remembered her address, her marriage, and so much more. So let's kind of learn about Shanti. This case all comes about in the 1930s. And like I was just saying, she described detailed memories of a life of a young woman named Lugdi Shabi, who had died some two years before the girl's birth. Lugdi's family, having been identified from her statements, Shanti Devi was able to subsequently lead the way to Lugdi's house where she recognized people that were related to Lugi and basically displayed accurate knowledge about intimate facts relating to Lugi's life. On January 18th, 1902, Lugi was born. She was married at age 10 to another fucking dude. Hello, weird, right? Mm, whatever. Their first child was stillborn. September 1925, Lugi gave birth to a healthy son by C-section and that was at a government hospital in Agra. Nine days after the C-section, Lugdi died from complications at age 23. So one year, 10 months after Lugdi's death, Shanti was born. When Shanti turned about four years old, she did begin speaking, but in a dialect different from that of her family. What Shanti started talking about was cleaning silverware, a town named Mutra of a picture of Krishna, and having a husband. And all of those recollections are literally just like the tip of the iceberg. She was actually able to describe in great detail the cesarean section procedures she had to a doctor. And the doctor was kind of shocked that this little ass kid had all of this information. She would repeatedly talk about how the family she was with was not her real family and that this house she was living in was not her house. Shanti didn't just talk about her past life with her family. Her headmaster, Lala Chand, convinced her to give him the address of the husband she spoke to, and she was able to do that. So Lala wrote to Kedarnath, and in time received an answer 
followed by a visit from Kedarnath's cousin. The girl immediately recognized him as her past life husband's cousin and began relating to him many correct facts of his own life and hers. So at this point, the headmaster is totally fucking convinced this girl is remembering a past life. She arranged for this, you know, past life husband to come visit her. They even like tried to trick her by telling her that the man that was coming was actually the husband's brother, but she wasn't tricked. She knew who he was immediately when he walked in. This girl, no shit, was able to talk about 150 rupees that had been hidden in the house and all of these other details. At this point, the media started reporting on the case and it caught the attention of an independent activist and political leader, Gandhi, who visited Shanti's home and invited her to his ashram, which is basically just like a monastery in Indian religions. Gandhi basically got together 15 prominent people to try to verify her memories. They had political leaders, congressional members, notable lawyers, journalists, so a bunch of fucking people with good reputations got together to try to test Shanti. On November 24th, 1935, all of this committee accompanied Shanti to the place, you know, the town that she said she used to live in. Once she got there, there was a crowd of people that I guess kind of came up to greet this girl and... In the crowd was a man named Babu Ram Shabi, who was the elder brother of the man she said was her husband. And, you know, how the fuck does this little girl know who the fucking older brother of her supposed husband is? So it's at this point, the committee's like, damn, girl, what else do you know? Give me some lotto numbers. As she is basically kind of having like a little tour of the city, she was able to point out a lot of things that kind of backed up her story. She was able to point out landmarks within this little town and also noted changes that had taken place since Lugdi had died. She accurately picked out Lugi's father-in-law and recalled the exact words he had once said to Lugi. One inaccuracy that was, uh, I guess, concerning the committee was that Shanti had said the house was yellow. But when they got to this house, it actually turned out to be white. So they go and talk to the building's current occupant. And he actually did confirm the house was yellow, but had recently been painted white. You know, they're going on this tour, going up and down the street or whatever, and they see Lugdi's brother. And the girl, Shanti, runs up to him and hugs him. And Lugdi's brother at this point decided to quiz her on stuff that had happened in their childhood. And at this point, the brother was 100% convinced this had been Lugdi. So after all of this shit, pointing out people she knows, able to fucking show the committee members around the town, they actually published a 26-page booklet in 1936 that concluded Shanti Devi was the reincarnation of Lugdi. And if you actually look for it, there are hell of cases like this. And what I see kind of like as a reoccurring theme is the children that have these memories start to lose the memories around puberty. So it got me digging a bit, and that's when I came across some research papers from the University of Virginia. Check this shit out. The name of the paper is Psychological Evaluation of American Children Who Report Memories from Previous Lives. It was conducted by Jim Tucker and Don Nidifer. 
The paper just basically starts out stating that some young children claim to have memories of a previous life, and they often show behaviors that appear related to the memories. This pilot study examined the psychological functioning of such children in the United States. 15 participants, ages 3 to 6, underwent testing with the Stanford Binet Intelligence Scale and the Children's Apperception Test. Their parents completed the survey form of the Vinland Adaptive Behavior Scales, the Child Behavior Checklist, the Child Disassociative Checklist, and the Family Questionnaire. 13 out of the 15 children obtained low scores on the Child Disassociative Checklist, indicating no disassociative thought patterns in most participants. The child behavior checklist averages all fell within the normal range, revealing no clinically significant behavior problems. Results on the children's apperception test revealed no unusual themes, and the families did not show any distinct patterns of functioning on the family questionnaire. Young children who claim to remember previous lives show high intelligence and testing revealed no evidence that their reports arise from psychopathology. Now, apparently this study was the first to include psychological evaluations of children that are making the statements who are from a culture without a general belief in reincarnation, like the United States. And it was also the first to test participants during their early ages when children typically report the memories. So now that you have the basic gist of how these studies were performed, let me read you the results. Of the 15 children who were evaluated, 11 reported memories of having lived the life of a stranger, while three said they remembered being a deceased grandparent and one a great-grandparent. In all of the cases involving strangers, no actual deceased individual had been identified whose life was thought to match the statements. Most of the parents reported that they had neutral or negative feelings about reincarnation before the cases developed and only three described a significant prior belief in reincarnation. So it's not like these fucking parents were influencing their children to like have some reincarnation fucking lies or anything like that. The authors of this study do admit that the pilot study that they wrote this research paper on used a limited amount of children, and they also recommended further study be done in the future to see if we could verify what the fuck was actually going on. If you go to the Virginia University website, which I'll leave a link to in the show notes, there's a bunch of studies that have been performed since this initial one. The authors do conclude that there is no evidence to indicate that a syndrome that includes past life memories and behaviors arise from psychopathology in American children. Likewise, the children in the current study demonstrate that the syndrome is not limited to places where cultural factors may promote them. The American children generally appeared to be functioning quite well, and past life reports may in fact be a marker for higher intelligence. Now check this out. Tucker's partner, Ian Stevenson, had case files reaching back to 1961. So Tucker ended up coding, like making a computer program so he could start entering all the information that Stevenson had collected over those decades. And these are some of the numbers he came up with. Roughly 70% of children say they died violent or unexpected deaths in their previous life. Males account for close to three quarters of those deaths. 
almost precisely the same ratio of males who die of unnatural causes in the general population. Most cases are reported in countries where reincarnation is part of the religious culture, but Tucker says there's no correlation between how strong a case is deemed and that family's belief in reincarnation. One out of five children who report a past life say they recall the intermission, and that's the time between death and birth although there is no consistent view of what that's like. Some allege they were in, quote, God's house, while others claim they waited near where they died before going inside their mothers. The cases where a child's story has been traced to another individual, the median time between the death of that person and the child's birth is about 16 months. And like I was saying earlier, Tuckers and others have shown the children generally have above average IQs and do not possess any mental or emotional disorders beyond average groups of children. None appear to have been disassociated from painful family situations. Nearly 20% of the children studied have scar-like birthmarks or even unusual deformities that closely match marks or injuries the person whose life the child recalls received at or near his or her time of death. Most children's claim generally subside around age six coincided roughly with what Tucker says is the time children's brains ready themselves for a new stage of development. There are so many kids that talk about remembering past lives and without any prompt from their parents because it's a religion or they believe in reincarnation, it really has to make you wonder what the fuck is actually going on here? Why do the kids seem to lose these memories once they start to get a bit older? Really makes you wonder. So according to Tucker, he says he's one of the only scientists in the world that is actually studying this phenomena. And he says the strength of the cases he encounters varies. Some can be easily discounted. For instance, when it becomes clear that a child's innocuous statements come within a family that desperately misses a loved one. But in a number of cases, Tucker says the most logical scientific explanation for a claim is as simple as it is astounding. Somehow, the child recalls memories from another life. Tucker said, quote, I understand the leap it takes to conclude there is something beyond what we can see and touch. And Tucker has served as a medical director of the university's child and family psychiatric clinic for nearly a decade. He also stated there is evidence here that needs to be accounted for. And when we look at the cases carefully, some sort of carryover memories often makes the most sense. Like I was saying earlier, Tucker has published a bunch of different papers on the subject of reincarnation. Michael Levine, the director of the Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology at Tufts University, wrote an academic review of Tucker's first book that it presented a, quote, first-rate piece of research. And that's because current scientific research models have no way to prove or debunk Tucker's findings. What you find is limited by how you are searching for it. Our current methods and concepts have no way of dealing with this data. So Tucker literally started researching reincarnation back in the 1990s. And he's been doing it ever since, you guys. He's, like I said, he has hella papers on it, on different case studies and different children that say they remember some kind of a past life. But that Michael Levine guy, he's right. I mean, obviously the tools we have and the research methods we have are very limiting when you're researching something like reincarnation. So it, you know, it's obviously has never been proven to be 100% true. But if we had the right tools to measure this phenomena, maybe it could be proved true. 
I mean, I think there's enough evidence out there with different children and their stories of reincarnation that it should at least make you pause and go, hmm, maybe that is possible. All right, you guys, it's change of subject time. So now we are going to not do a deep dive, but I'm just going to briefly tell you about the origins of pornography and who is actually kind of behind it. So the modern creators of pornography have a surprising connection to religious figures and influential filmmakers. Figures like Father Emmanuel de Alzon, who's associated with the Roman Catholic Church. A little bit of background on Father Emmanuel de Alzon. He was born into a French aristocratic family and produced the first pornographic movies through the Roman Catholic publishing company La Bonne Presse. He was educated at the famous Jesuit College de Clermont, the birthplace of the Jesuit theater and the forerunner of Hollywood. Emmanuel de Alizan paid a pair of photographers and French filmmakers to make the first and oldest surviving pornographic movie. I think it's just kind of interesting because the whole Jesuit order has always spoken out against pornography, but yet here they have their their boy here just fucking funding it. <laughs> Funding the first porn in the history of porn. So who fucking knows? But it seems to me like they see are kind of like, I don't know, funding both sides of this argument. Shocker. But now check this shit out. These creators, often associated with religious institutions, even more kind of fucking crazy and out there, is the involvement of individuals who publicly oppose pornography while being connected to its production behind the scenes. Reverend Morton A. Hill, who is an American Jesuit priest known for his anti-pornography stance, also has ties to this industry that they say should not even exist. Like, what the fuck is going on here, religious dudes, huh? If you look into it, you can also find collaborations between different groups in perpetuating the pornographic industry. There were collaborations between the Jesuits and the Jews, particularly Shabbat, Lubavitch, and the Zionists, in controlling the industry. Individuals like Al Goldstein and Rubid Sturman, both of Jewish descent, played significant roles in popularizing pornography in the United States. So if you really look into it, there are prominent figures like Solomon Friedman, who was a Canadian Jewish lawyer and rabbi. And that whole thing adds a whole nother fucking rabbit hole to go down. So this fucking Friedman guy, he's a rabbi and he's associated with the acquisition of Pornhub. Like, what, what's going on, religious men? Like, why are we condemning this shit in public, but we're funding and producing it behind the scenes? I have read before that hostile nations will flood a country with pornographic material to try to destabilize it and kind of weaken the family bond. So it makes you kind of wonder, like, what the fuck is going on? Because any fucking five-year-old can use a phone now and get whatever porn they want within fucking 10 seconds off the internet. It is everywhere. And basically anybody can access any type of porn they want within seconds. Really has to make you wonder what the fuck is going on with this shit. And unfortunately, a lot of the women that are involved in making pornography, they're either a sex trafficked, they're fucking addicted to drugs, all kinds of bad shit. So I don't know, guys, maybe uh, think twice before you pull up your next porn shit on the internet. (laughs) Moving right along now, check this shit out. 
a Kentucky judge gave no jail time to a transgender daycare worker who sexually abused a baby. Mark, quote unquote, Maria Childers won't get any prison time thanks to a plea deal he took after facing charges of sexual abuse against a baby. Now, obviously, this lenient sentence has sparked outrage in the community where this fucktard abused the child. This is like the backstory. Childers was arrested in February 2023 after the Department of Community-Based Services received an anonymous tip detailing an alleged incident of abuse that occurred in November 2022 at Explore Learning Academy. The tip, reportedly written by one of Childers' co-workers, accused him of making inappropriate comments toward an infant while changing the child's diaper and touching the child inappropriately. According to the court documents, Childers was accused of both physical and sexual abuse while employed at the daycare. Following the receipt of the initial anonymous complaint, a DCBS caseworker and police officer from Paducah Police Department went to the daycare on February 8, 2023 to interview a witness. After speaking to a number of staff, they were able to corroborate the anonymous report. This fucking disgusting pedophile faced one count of first-degree sexual abuse of a victim under 12 and three counts of first-degree criminal abuse of a child under 12. So check this out. Those original charges were dropped from first-degree sexual abuse to a misdemeanor sexual misconduct charge. So this fucking pedophile is now prohibited from visiting the daycare and must have no contact with children. Childers was arrested in February 2023. And this part is all fucked up, so I'm about to give you some of the details of the, what this piece of shit did. One of his coworkers witnessed him rubbing one of the infant's genitals in a circular motion while saying it was her clit and she liked it. Like, what the actual fuck? Childers initially denied that he changed the infant's diaper at all, but after reportedly being supplied with evidence of his lie, Childers was booked at the McCracken County Jail. One month after being booked in jail, Childers retained trans activist lawyer, Democrat politician in Kentucky named Madison Leach to represent him. Now, if you didn't know, Leach is also a tranny woman and um, she's he, she, whatever the fuck, argued that Childers' bond should be reduced because he has no access to estrogen while in solitary confinement. The fucking court approved this movement and Childers' bond was lowered from $100,000 to $5,000. Like what in the clown world fuck is going on here? This disgusting ass pedophile was released in January 2024 and struck a deal with the prosecutors on the 24th. In exchange for a guilty plea, Childers' sentence was dropped to a class A, sexual misconduct, and all of the abuse charges were dropped. Judge Joseph Rourke charged Childers with a 12-month penalty, withholding punishment with a six-month discharge. And as long as this little fucking tranny pedophile abides by the conditions of his release over a six-month period, he'll serve no prison time. Like, what the fuck? So a fucking pedophile, whether he's a tranny or he's fucking straight or gay or whatever, he's a fucking pedophile. So you know, just check this out. You're a fucking pedophile, but you're a tranny pedophile. So they're going to give you a slap on the wrist. Uh, yeah, that's all fucking bad. We have just entered the next level of the clown world. Since we are on the subject of the clown world, let's talk about this 2022 law in Georgia 
that basically says any companies that get a contract with the state need to basically pledge an oath for Israel. I'm fucking, I should be speechless, but like I said, we're so far in the clown world. I'm just like, oh yeah, it's fucking Friday. So the governor signed the legislation months after a federal judge struck down a similar 2016 law requiring state contractors to sign the oath on the grounds that it violated free speech rights. The challenge was brought by a documentary filmmaker who refused to sign the pledge. So this new law, House Bill 383, raises a threshold for anti-boycott pledge to state contractors worth more than $100,000. It also applies to only companies with five or more employees, limiting the number of firms affected by the mandate. So basically, if you get a contract with the state, you have to promise that you're not going to fucking do anything publicly to say you're boycotting Israel. Fucking Governor Kemp said, quote, in a deeper sense, this reaffirms our support for a friend and a crucial ally in Israel. As your governor, I will never allow the state of Georgia to invest in a company that supports boycotts, divesting or sanctions against Israel. Um, I'm sorry, do they, do any contractors that are in Georgia have to sign an oath to, I don't know, the United States or the state of Georgia, or is this just an Israel thing? Because I'm pretty sure it's just an Israel thing. It's fucking mind-blowing. Like, how can they require businesses to sign this? Who cares? It's like, what the fuck? You're going to literally tell businesses that if you want to do business with the state, you can't do anything to boycott Israel? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but Israel's done a whole shit ton of stuff that they probably should be boycotted for, which, you know, it's never going to happen because apparently the United States is owned by Israel. U.S. District Court Judge Mark Cohen ruled that the anti-boycott pledge that the documentarian was asked to sign was, quote, no different than requiring a person to espouse a certain political belief or engage in certain political associations. Yeah, no shit, Judge Cohen. I I totally agree. So hopefully this shit hurries the fuck up and gets moved up to a federal court so they can get rid of this bullshit once again. I can't believe George is just like, oh, sure, sure, we're going to fucking penalize American companies if they don't want to fucking unequivocally support Israel. That's just fucking insane to me. Make an oath to Israel if you want a fucking state contract. Who comes up with this clown world shit? And why do we allow it to happen? Why are they not pledging an oath to the fucking state or, you know, the United States? Why Israel? Why do so many politicians seem to be owned by Israel? It's absolutely astonishing. We need to talk about Canada for a minute here. So I'd like to remind everyone about all the fact checkers saying that the Kabobo vaccine did not affect fertility only for studies that were later published to say, yes, actually it does. The spike protein gets stored in the ovaries. Now, Canada has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. And Canada's 2002 fertility rate is the lowest on record. The rate of 1.33 children per woman is the lowest total fertility rate in more than a century, you guys. And do you think anyone is going to like draw the connection? Hey, we just forced basically nearly our entire population to get this fucking experimental bioweapon. And now the fertility rates are fucking plummeting. How long do I have to scream about this shit until finally it starts to get out to the general public? How fucked up this shit is. And you know what? I'm sure if they look at other like Western nations that have high vaccination rates, 
I'm pretty sure that the fertility rates are going to be plummeting. And this information is coming from StatsCan, which is basically an official Canadian government website. Check this shit out. Every G7 country, apart from the United States, posted a decline in fertility in 2022. Canada's decrease was one of the largest among high-income countries. Fucking France has a higher fertility right now. The United Kingdom and Germany all have higher fertility rates than Canada. You Canadian motherfuckers need to get rid of Justin Trudeau. Unfortunately, I'm sure he's not even really running the show like dementia-ass President Brandon. So I don't know if that would even do any good. And I'm starting to see like, and there's a Canadian sub on Reddit and they're actually allowed now, you won't get an instant ban, to talk out against Trudeau and his administration. So Trudeau is probably like, well, I was just saying, a fucking figurehead for the people actually in control, just like the potato President Brandon. So I don't, I don't know if getting rid of Trudeau would literally even do anything because like with America doesn't matter if you fucking vote Republican or Democrat. Shit never changes. And when it does, it's so minuscule, it barely affects anyone. It's fucking ridiculous. Check out this fucking retarded excuse that Stats Canada is giving for the drop in fertility. They said, quote, I think that the pandemic made people a little bit more uncertain about what the world is going to be like. When there's a lot of uncertainty, fertility tends to be lower. People aren't eager to go and start families when they're not sure what their job prospects are going to be like. I mean, maybe that does account for some of it, but it definitely has nothing to do with the bioweapon they forced women, pregnant women, children, men, hell of citizens in Canada to get injected with. I, need, I think I need some medical professionals to start fucking drawing these correlations and fucking, hey, warn people. Stop fucking giving their patients these drugs, this bioweapon, when they themselves don't even know what the fuck is inside of it. Most of them never even bothered looking into these jabs before they started forcing it on their patients. Absolute clown world bullshit. And 100% the doctors that fucking gave out these jabs need to be held accountable just like the leaders, the political leaders in the different countries. They're all responsible in one way or another for injecting people with a literal mRNA bioweapon. And speaking of mRNA bioweapons, I just saw that another one of these fucking criminal organization pharmaceutical companies has come up with an mRNA vaccination for cancer. Then I also saw the King of England had just been diagnosed with cancer. So let me tell you how I think it's going to go down. It's already been spread across the fucking news in the media that King Charles or whatever the fuck his name is, the English dude, has cancer. And now they're toting this mRNA vaccine for cancer. So I wouldn't be surprised if the King dude comes out and says, yeah, I went and got this mRNA treatment and I beat my cancer. So should you. I don't know. Some shit like that probably will go down. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right, you guys, that's about it for this week. But before I get out of here, I have to say what's up to our top three downloading states, which are California, Illinois, and Texas. That's what's up, you guys. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Shoot me an email if you have a rabbit hole I should check out, vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com. As far as our international peeps, we have Canada in first, the UK second, Japan in third, and Ireland in fourth. 
What's up, international listeners? I appreciate you guys checking this shit out every week. Come over to my Reddit sub, r slash Vanish in the Valley, and say what's up. But until next week, be aware, and don't forget your fucking pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.